Welcome to this episode of When Science Makes History. This episode is entitled, The Boy Who Was Traded for a Horse. I write this episode after reading a most excellent book handed to me by one of my students. Thank you, Savannah, for this title. It was a captivating and fascinating read, as you had promised. It detailed the life of a preeminent scientist who was ever so humble and intentionally pushed aside human fame and recognition, focusing rather on the gifts of this earth and how they could better all mankind. In fact, on his tombstone, his epitaph reads, quote, He could have added fortune to fame, but caring for neither, he found happiness and honor in being helpful to the world, end quote. Helpful to the world? Indeed. Sadly, it's likely we don't even know his correct name. He was the boy that the Carvers owned and his mother had named George. Later, he would adopt W as a middle initial to avoid confusion with another boy of a similar name, and much later become the beloved peanut man we know today as George Washington Carver. So, stay tuned to this episode of When Science Makes History, entitled, The Boy Who Was Traded for a Horse. Welcome back to this episode of When Science Makes History, entitled, The Boy Who Was Traded for a Horse. To gain insight into why this title, we need to understand the background and times in which George W. Carver grew up. George was born sometime around 1864. His exact date of birth is not known. This is due partly to poor record keeping as he was simply regarded as a piece of property that was owned by Moses and Susan Carver of Diamond, Missouri. Diamond, Missouri is a small town in the lower west corner of the state that is only a stone's throw from bordering Kansas, Arkansas, and Oklahoma, and as such was steeped, needless to say, in the practice of slavery at the time. As slavery was yet to be abolished, George's mom, Mary, and his dad, Giles, were indeed slaves who were purchased by Moses Carver for the price of $700. Moses Carver, who was purportedly against slavery, purchased Mary and Giles to help him on his 240-acre farm. Mary and Giles had a son, James, a daughter, and another son, George. As the story goes, George's dad had died in a logging accident before George was born, leaving his mother Mary to tend to George, his sister, and his brother. Raiders in the area would often steal a property owner's slaves to sell them at auction, making the guarding of slaves of high importance. Moses had hiding places on his property, which were used on more than one occasion to protect Mary and her children. However, one night the raiders came and stole Mary, George, and his sister away, heading off by horseback into the night. Moses, quite upset at losing not only Giles, but now Mary and her children, sought the help of a man named John Bentley to track them down. Moses offered Bentley 40 acres of the land that he owned to get them back and even gave him one of his fastest horses with which to make the journey. Bentley set off to track down the raiders, yet ultimately failed, and in the end, all Bentley came back with was a baby boy. As the child was exposed to the elements during the raid and throughout the night, what Bentley brought back was a cold and wheezing, sick infant barely clinging to life. Susan grabbed the infant and began warming him and nursing him back to health, Watching this unfold, Bentley conceded that his return of only the child was not worth the 40 acres originally agreed upon. Moses, in turn, offered him the horse to keep as payment instead of the land. So, we have a very sick boy returned for the payment of a horse, hence the title of the podcast, A Boy Traded for a Horse. 
However, the title of this podcast is not original to me, yet is a title of an article by James Saxon Childers in 1937. More on that later. George did survive, but not through an easy, healthy recovery and happy childhood. He was incredibly sickly the whole of his childhood, which also affected his voice, leaving him with a high-pitched, almost girlish voice. It also left him quite weak physically. Moses and Susan cared for young George and his brother as if they were their own boys, even teaching them to read, a brave step forward for a slave in the Deep South. After eventually recovering, Susan kept him close to her while James worked out in the fields. Each boy was in their area of gifting. James was strong-bodied and physically capable of assisting Moses in the fields, while frailer George remained in the house assisting Susan. George was keenly observant, quickly picking up tasks and skills, and even became a quite adept at crocheting. Some of his crocheting work remains on display in the Moses and Susan Carver Museum in Diamond, Missouri. It was abundantly clear to all George interacted with that he had a unique gifting and an almost perceptible ability to communicate with nature. He was an avid learner with an unquenchable sense of inquisitiveness. Susan poured into him everything she could teach him until eventually he wanted to go to formal schooling. Yet, this was not possible in Diamond Grove because of his race. So, he walked the 10 miles to Neosho, where there was a school for black children. He arrived in town late in the evening and, having nowhere to reside, slept outside in a woodshed. That is, until Mariah Watkins found him in the shed and took him in. When she asked him his name, he merely stated that he was Carver's George, which she turned to become George Carver. The W is a random middle initial he chose, but claims it never really stood for Washington. His signature says George W., not George Washington. Mariah Watkins became another mother of sorts to him, encouraging his learning even further and taking a special interest in this gifted botanist. When it came time for George to attend college, he applied at several and was summarily rejected due to his race. And even when he did gain acceptance at a college in Kansas, upon his arrival on campus, they immediately declined his attendance, realizing at that time, he was black. His persistence, though, led him forward and he continued to pursue college acceptance for almost five years. Washington's education took off and he eventually headed to Iowa State University, quite a feat in and of itself as he was the first black student at the university. In 1891, he would begin at Iowa State where he studied botany and acquired a bachelor's degree followed by a master's of science. Not only was Carver the first black student at Iowa State, but he would also become the first black faculty member as well. Iowa State, incidentally, still maintains 100 full tuition scholarships named in his honor available to multicultural students under their George Washington Carver program. His connections at Iowa State and his reputation as a gifted botanist allowed him fame and a potentially secure future, which he wrestled over and eventually set aside. Mariah Watkins, one of his motherly caretakers of his youth, challenged him that while the world was unfair and stacked against his people, he shouldn't get bitter over that, but should spend his life giving back to his people. Carver took this to heart, realizing that he had been endowed with an aptitude and gift over the creation that would benefit his people, and no area needed that help more than the Deep South. Another leader in the African-American community, Booker T. Washington, actually invited Carver to come to Alabama and teach and head up the school's agricultural department. Well, after a lot of wrestling, Carver departed Iowa and began to teach at the Tuskegee Institute in Tuskegee, Alabama. 
In fact, he would remain there for 47 years, eventually passing away on January 5th, 1943, where, incidentally, he would be buried next to Booker T. Washington at what is now Tuskegee University. Unfortunately, Tuskegee Institute has an ominous reputation derived from the Tuskegee study where the United States Public Health Service conducted a, quote, study, end quote, entitled, The Tuskegee Study of Untreated Syphilis in the Negro Male. It appeared in history as yet another imposed point of suffering placed upon the African-American population by the surrounding white population. The summary of this debacle was that at the time the study began in 1932, there was no known treatment for syphilis. However, by the end of the study, there was a treatment, but that treatment, namely penicillin, was withheld from the participants. The study involved 600 individuals. 201 were part of the control group, while the other 399 had syphilis and were part of the experimental group. Neither group was provided penicillin. The ability to treat patients in a study and withholding that treatment is an egregious violation of human rights and is ethically unjustified. Even in recent times, if a particular medication being clinically evaluated shows great promise in treating patients, the research is stopped prematurely and the treatment is then made available to all. In the end, a class action suit against the United States Public Health Service provided $9 million to study participants and their families, and the Tuskegee Syphilis Study Legacy Committee persuaded the then-sitting President Bill Clinton to apologize for the, quote, emotional, medical, research, and psychological damage of the study, end quote which he did on May 16, 1996. However, it should be also noted that the Tuskegee University has produced some amazing and notable alumni, such as Lionel Richie, who got us through the 1980s with hits such as Dancing on the Ceiling and All Night Long. When we come back, we'll take a look at what Carver did that dramatically changed the mode of Southern agriculture and moved the region closer to prosperity and away from poverty. Hey, thanks for listening to When Science Makes History. The research is a labor of love and interest, and we hope it expands your knowledge and that you truly enjoy it. The podcast is really intended to grow our understanding of topics in science that actually had a part in shaping the course of history. You see, all disciplines of learning are interrelated and not separate islands or individual subjects such as we had in school, and here we're just trying to bring them together in an informative and, who knows, potentially entertaining manner. So thanks for listening, and we truly appreciate your support of this podcast. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at When Science Makes History, and be sure to reach out if there are other topics that you want to see mentioned on this podcast. Subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to this episode entitled The Boy Who Was Traded for a Horse on the Life of the Infamous George W. Carver. Carver was a veritable genius that seemed to communicate with the plants and the creation in which he immersed himself. He had an intuition that was remarkable to all those whom he encountered. Without testing equipment such as soil meters, pH probes, and moisture meters, he could simply look at a field or a plant and diagnose what was ailing the botanical specimen and then suggest a remedy that often involved using the off-scouring of another part of the botanical world. He's likely most remembered for advancing the sweet potato which is incidentally in the Morning Glory family more than the Potato family, but I digress. He also advanced the peanut. He even tried to advance the tomato as a dietary staple among the people of the South, yet had little success in this venture. 
Comically, the tomato has long struggled to be considered an edible food around the world well into the 1800s. Today, we simply take them for granted. The same was true for the peanut. It didn't really gain popularity as a food group until carvers showed the amazing versatility, nutritional, and agricultural value all in one plant product. You see, the peanut's not a nut. It's more like a pea in that it is a legume. And this facet is what Carver capitalized on. Soil needs nitrogen. And very few plants put nitrogen back into the soil. Most take it out. The legume family puts nitrogen back into the soil. Sadly, generations of planting cotton in the South made for a severely depleted soil. Upon arriving in Alabama at Tuskegee, Carver was distraught over the depleted soil and the feeble attempts at sharecroppers to continue growing cotton on such poor ground. The cotton of past decades had pulled necessary nitrogen from the soil, leaving sandy topsoil that was practically useless, and yet here they were continuing to attempt to grow cotton in this paltry soil. His remedy was to replenish the soil, starting with manure, then legumes, of which the peanut was the crop of choice. The legume family puts nitrogen back into the soil, and Carver knew this. Peas, soybeans, peanuts, and lentils, among others, are part of the legume family, and if grown, would add the necessary nitrogen back to the soil. Crop rotation and leaving fields fallow were also sustainable methods that Carver employed, and the people saw the success that he was teaching. Soon, folks from all over the South would come to Tuskegee to solicit George's input on their crop-related dilemmas. One of those dilemmas occurred in 1919. About two hours from Tuskegee in Enterprise, Alabama, there's a statue composed of a female figure holding a short pedestal above her head and a large insect on the pedestal. That insect is the boll weevil, which from 1915 to 1918 was absolutely decimating the cotton crops of the South. Growing in already depleted soil, the cotton was weakened to such a pest and farmers were being encouraged to plant other crops to stave off financial ruin. The crop of choice? You guessed it, the peanut. It was perfect as it is a legume that would only serve to enhance the soil quality, it would also begin to separate the South from cotton, and even better was a nutritious food product. Add nitrogen to the soil while growing nutritious food, it's a win-win. Peanuts, in turn, fast became a cash crop all over the South. Enterprise Alabama still celebrates an annual boll weevil fall festival, and the town statue has been analogized for decades as a demonstration of how something seemingly disastrous, such as the boll weevil, can serve as the impetus for a change that is positive, such as instituting the peanut crop. The South traded cotton for peanuts, and Carver went to work churning out products made from the peanut that folks could make in their own homes. The author, James Saxon Childers, asserted that Carver himself was solely responsible for the rise in popularity of the peanut and is the one who coined the title for this podcast in his article entitled, The Boy Who Is Traded for a Horse. Eventually, George took his show on the road, per se. While he was never a showman, far from it, he took his agricultural school on the road. Rather than having folks come to Tuskegee, he would go to them and teach, encourage, and suggest modifications for their farming that would produce healthier, more bountiful crops. So he built a custom school bus van combo called a Jessup wagon that could house all the needed supplies to teach 
and would travel away from Tuskegee into the rural back areas of the South, extending the impact of his teaching and the Tuskegee name. Through this, Carver taught a generation of black students how to become more self-sufficient through wiser farming techniques. Carver's ways were of the earth and reflected a deep understanding of how the biological world is designed to work in harmony. While not a pantheist or what we would consider a worshiper of the earth, he believed in one system working to the benefit of another system. For example, he would encourage the farmers he met out in rural areas to use acorns that were on their property as food source for their pigs. The acorns had tannins and other substances that act like natural pesticides and were also a healthier food source for the pigs. As the farmers took his advice, the pigs, the soil, and the farm became healthier, stronger, and more sustainable. The man, as I said, was a veritable genius. His permaculture practices included rotating crops and exploiting relationships within the ecosystem rather than exploiting a particular crop or animal. We would likely do well to revisit his thinking in a world seemingly obsessed with monocultures of corn, soy, and wheat. But again, I digress. Carver would spend the rest of his life at Tuskegee and see it grow from a fledgling agricultural school to a namesake in the agricultural realm. As we close out this episode, there's so much that we have glossed over regarding Carver that I strongly encourage you to read up on his life, his science, his faith, his humility, amidst all the popularity that he experienced. He is a wise, humble gentleman. He advised presidents, spoke to Congress, and even had a true friend in none other than Henry Ford. All of this fame and influence was also accomplished while gently pushing against the lifelong racism and exclusion of African Americans from broader society that he experienced on a daily basis. George W. Carver and Booker T. Washington were not only friends, co-workers, and founders of Tuskegee, but they're also depicted together on a commemorative half dollar that ran from 1951 to 1954. I was so impressed by reading and studying Carver's life through this podcast that I actually went on eBay and bought one. It really is special to see these two heroes of history and science together on a coin. I have a rock collection, a collection of the elements, a collection of soils from around the world, a skull collection, and of course, a coin collection. After studying Carver's life anew, this coin holds a special place in my science collection. So there you have it, the life of George W. Carver, the boy who was traded for a horse on this episode of When Science Makes History. Hey listeners, as we cross over one full year of podcasts, I just want to again say thanks for the support and advice. Thank you to listeners such as Nate, my old painting buddy, PB, Bob, and others for your encouragement to keep going and the advice on what to improve. Most of all, thanks to my family. As mentioned previously, this project has been a bit of a family affair with one of my sons showing me how to make and record a podcast as he has his own podcast entitled The Everything Bagel Podcast. One of my sons made the bumper music that you hear at the start, and my daughter is to be credited with the name When Science Makes History. So, all in all, many thanks for the support and interest by all involved. I truly hope the topics broaden your intellectual horizons, encourage conversations with others, and incite you to read on these topics beyond what you hear here.